point behind these is is to you know I think uh, I think it's really easy for people that are struggling to to look at people that have had some degree of success and be like you know you've had all the breaks or you've had the money or you're an overnight success like they don't see the struggle that that really goes into it and. Uh, you know, I think by sharing our stories and, and uh, you know, we've all got struggle, struggles, we've all got obstacles to overcome. It, it makes it relatable and, and uh, those people that are going through tough times can actually see that, you know, hey, like, they did it, he did it, maybe I can do it too. We've got uh, Derek Woodski on. Derek, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on. appreciate you having me it's uh, you know it's definitely an interesting thing the story itself can be as long or as short as I need to make it you know it's <laughs> one of those situations where for me because I pursued athletics from British Columbia I didn't really have a lot of the opportunities that most people in my sport would have had even within Canada mm. and if you go back to the mid 1990s, what I you know, if you weren't from one of the big centers like Vancouver, Calgary, Winnipeg, Toronto, etc., typically you didn't see a lot of the athletic opportunities that those kids or those students would have had. Sure. You know, so I learned very, very early on. I sort of started to manifest this idea within myself that if I was going to move outside of the confines of a, a logging town of 200 people, it really was going to have to overcome was myself, for yeah. lack of a better uh, understanding. And to do that, I'll be quite honest, and I've spoken about it a little bit, I had to start creating almost a false sense of reality, because what I was trying to do had never been done before. And, you know, so when we talk about setbacks and adversities, right from the very beginning, you know, I was in a situation that hadn't been achieved. No one from my town, from that community, or from that valley had ever done what I was thinking about trying to do. It, it didn't wow. exist. And we knew that it existed in the world. We knew that other people had gone on to be athletes or whatever, but not in my sport, not where I was from. Yeah. And... So we did our best to try to surround ourselves with people that would come in and out of our lives that would have a, a bit of information here or a bit of information there. And that just started to put me on this path of, of, of trying to learn as much as I could so that I could try to achieve this goal. And when I graduated high school, at the time, the, the greatest opportunity I had as an athlete was to train in a track club in another small town in BC, but at least it was like one incremental step <laughs> higher than where I'd been, you know? Yeah. And so I went and I thought that was that was the big big time, right? Like that's what I had to do. And at the at the end of the day when I look back, it was still so far down on the rung that it wasn't big time. But yeah. what that did is it introduced me to some people 
that had gone to the United States on scholarships, that had done it, had experienced it, and they knew who to call or at the very least gave me an idea of where to look. Yeah. And so I used those opportunities to get in touch with some people. And when I got to the United States for sports, it was a, it was a very small school. It was a very unique opportunity. And the way I, I describe it when I really take the time to tell it is I was put into the perfect situation at the perfect time. I had a young coach who was a high school teacher who would eventually go on to be the 2008 U.S. Olympic coach, but he didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is way back yeah. in his life. Um, so I was put into his life, and I was put in as this kid that was so driven because of where he had come from that yeah. I would push and push because I'd already super exceeded expectation at that point. Yeah. So for me, it was just, I couldn't train hard enough. I couldn't train more because I figured I was already at such a disadvantage from where I started that I must have this entire world that I need to catch up on. And, and I just, I kept pursuing that until I eventually had a lot of success in track and field. But with success, I also had a, a huge amount of setback. Uh, in 2000, between a surgery on my right foot and a uh, sorry, surgery I've had surgery on both my feet, a surgery <laughs> on my left foot and a surgery on my right knee, you know, I ended up being so damaged from training that I took a year to have to learn how to walk again in 2000. Wow! And and it, it was tough because I literally. in the U.S. college system, you know, and they were starting to talk about Olympic hopeful and all these things and all these positives were coming into light. And then I got hurt. Then I got hurt really bad. And, and how old were that, you at the time, Derek? Go ahead. How old were you? You know, I was a little bit older, um, but I was still only 22. So, you know, I was, I was your typical junior in college, yeah. you know, age wise. And, you know, and, and basically, it literally was one of those situations where in like 30 seconds, everything just ends, you know? Yeah. And it, you can equate it to a death or a loss because in a sense it is where something that had been is gone and is going to be replaced with either nothing or something that is completely different than what it was. Absolutely. And. Yeah. For me, it was replaced with something that was going to be forever different. Yeah, you know? and that could be devastating to, to so many people. Like, how do you how do you pick yourself up from that? You, you know? know, it was uh, it was a weird time. Um, you know, for the first for the first ten weeks, I sort of had some time to to just be inside my own head because for the first ten weeks, I was in a hip cast, so there was no rehab. There was no there's nothing that involved interaction with anybody. It's all and, mental. You know, so I mental. just had to wait. Yeah, I, yeah. Had, I had to sit around and wait. But it was funny because during that period of time, yeah, and the best way I can describe it is that same fantasy-creating side of my personality 
that existed when I was a kid where I would see myself as a much greater success level than I was in that little town of Parson. You know, like when I was training, I was in my mind, I was always this, this great success. I was doing great things. Yep, when I was training, I was in a fantasy all the time. That's the right like, brain, brother. Yes, right? right? And it's, it's, it's like the kids playing catch in the backyard, but they're actually in, in the uh, World Series. You know, <laughs> playing, they're in the Super Bowl in the backyard, yeah, right? Yeah. One's a wide receiver and one's a quarterback that day. And, yeah. And it was that same mentality. Well, I realized it was going to be that same type of thinking that was going to get me through it. And what I ended up doing is I started to really create this idea in my head that I was going to come back from this injury and I was going to have success again. And after I had success, I don't know if I was ever going to make the national team. I didn't know if I was ever going to go beyond that level. I didn't even know if I'd compete in college again. So I just started to think of myself as, as the guy that was going to come back from the injury and win again. Because yeah. it, there was no way to know what I was doing. And it did. It took, a, it took about uh, 14 months to be able to run it about 70% because I'd lost so much function in the knee. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but I, just, I kept moving. And in my mind, I just kept believing that I was going to win again and win again. And 13 months after my surgery, I competed at the Indoor National Championships in the U.S. Collegiate System, and I snuck into eighth place. 13 months later, what that eighth place represented was actually the status of All-American. Now, uh -huh. I'd been All-American previous at the other university, and I'd been a national champion previous, but this was a higher level of competition. So to get in and get that All-American status at Division One was like, okay... This I can do this. I can do this. Yeah. And, and I sort of got to a crossroads at that point where I was like, is this enough? Like, to come <laughs> back from this injury and be All-American? Yeah, was, yeah. You know, was this enough? Maybe yeah. this is it. A lot of guys train four years and can't be an All-American. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. And I was able to do it coming off this injury. And uh, and I remember taking off my, my knee brace after the competition, and there was an American shot putter named Christian Cantwell who's been on a number of Olympic teams, was sitting on the field, and he had competed as well. And I had actually edged him out a little bit that day. <laughs> and he's looking at me, and he's looking at my knee, and he just shakes his head. And I'm like, yeah, it is that bad. It was that bad. Wow. I took a job coaching at a university in Michigan. And people talk about the struggles, right, of coaching and PT and making money in business. Yeah. And I tell people, I'm like, my first job that I took as a coach, and I didn't know if I was still going to be an athlete or not, so I was thinking, well, maybe I'm just going to become a coach. I made less than $1,000 a month working 40 hours a week for a year. Wow. Right? Like, just invested in these athletes. Like, just that's who I was. I was a college coach, writing programs, coaching athletes. So you, you had like 550 bucks a month rent out of that, you know, <laughs> living in the cement box in like Whitaker, Michigan or wherever the hell it was. And, and I decided that I was going to start rehabbing my body on my own because the, the, the collegiate system was done and the protection of all the, of the good therapy I'd had is gone. Wow. And I just started started doing it and over the course of that year 
I just sort of bumped along athletically, and the next thing I knew, I was sitting number two in Canada. And I was like, well, what do I do? You know, I'm, I'm only making $12,000 a year. I'm actually not even making enough to pay taxes. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, I'm coaching. Like, what, what do I do? And, and, uh, and at that time, I had an opportunity to go train with Judd Logan in Ashland. So I gave up my job, became a volunteer assistant coach for, for no money. My parents helped me out a little bit with rent, and I just started training. Wow. And, and training very, very hard that year. And that year, I moved within striking distance of the Canadian national record. Within two years, I broke the Canadian national record, and I made Team Canada uh, with the Commonwealth team. And and it just that opened up a lot of other opportunities. Where financially, I couldn't see it coming right away. Yeah. But it just put me on a path of interaction with people. That yeah, you know, it's taken a long time. I you know. We're talking. It's been it's been going on almost twelve years since I moved to Ashland, you know, and yeah. trained with Judd. I mean, it's this has been a very long process, a lot of really long hours spent for very little in return. Yeah, a lot but, of hurdles. Yeah, so I've had a very tumultuous path to to get to where I'm at now, and by no means is the path going to be any less tumultuous in the future. Yeah. It's just going to change, and I got more life experience to be able to deal with those changes. Yeah. I was just going to say, I think your story brings about two things, and, and we're probably getting a little bit of a he- ahead of ourselves, but uh, that first step that you took, and, and you know, the, way back when, um, just getting out of your hometown and, and things that hadn't been done before, like, I think that's such an important key, is, is so many people try to think of a big picture and, like, try to plan everything out, and, you know, how am I going to get there, and who am I going to meet, and just take the first step. And that's what you did, and, and then, you know, it opened up so many doors, and you met the right coaches and the right people and the right network. Um, so that, and then uh, um, the mindset after your injury, because, I mean, yeah, so many people go down the other road, and it's like, what was me, and this sucks, and, and then they right. follow that. Like, if you had done that, if you had not used the, like, if you, I guess, used the logical part of your brain, the left side, and, and looked at where you were um, at that point in time and, and you may never have have yeah. came back to run again, let alone accomplish what you did. So, so you know, maybe you want to speak to those two points like because I think you know those are, are two keys to your, your – Yeah, your and, uh, and Mr. Ellingham was a clever guy, but he used to refer to uh, small town life in Canada in particular is the Peter Pan syndrome. And yeah. the idea that nobody ever wanted to leave home, you know, that's it, uh, it. It's too fearful. There's too much uh, sense of abandonment and, and loss of connection. Yeah. And, and for sure, I felt the same things, you know, and, and it was oddly enough out of tragedy that spawned my ability to separate from that. And it wasn't a tragedy that affected my family specifically, but in those small communities far away from home, to be able to get home fast enough if something went wrong. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That was a big motivating factor for me. And and it, it was, you know, I, I made very small steps in the beginning because of it. And, and it, it's a very 
harsh way to think about it, but what happened to me was uh, a, fr a friend's brother, all within the same age group, died in a, an accident. And, and what it made me do is I sat back and it was really like an eye-opener for me because I realized it didn't matter if I was in Perth, Australia, or sitting across the street in the cafe, nothing would have changed that accident. Yeah. There was nothing that was going to, I couldn't do anything about it. There was nothing that I was going to do or could have done that was going to change that event in that logging road that day. And I realized at that moment that a lot of what my apprehension was related to was the fear in itself of the unknown and the fear that my responsibilities or my connection, I couldn't do something like today because I do travel so much and I always have that sense of disconnection. But I had to come to the realization that everybody in a sense is put on the earth to live their life to the best of their ability. Yeah. How you can interact with others and how you bring them in and out of your life is a part of that. But, like, it's, like my, my family's very close. Uh, my brother and I are very, very close. Uh, and my parents, so I'm very fortunate that way. But I realized that my dad's life was his life. My brother's life is his life. I can't yeah. live that for either of them. No. So as much as I would love to be in the same town with my brother all the time, doing stuff with him every day, you gotta live he's got to do his thing, right? He's got to do his thing. Yeah. And I got to do mine. And, yeah, 100%. And, I agree with you times. But that's, that's I, in my opinion, the biggest limiting factor in small town Canada is realizing that sometimes you have to, you have to go out and, and just let the opportunity for an individual existence take priority. And, and it's not a selfishness like I used to think it was. I thought I used to be very selfish for leaving. But now I look back and it has nothing to do with being selfish. It has everything to do with taking my family name and trying to live it to the best of my ability. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and being a good person. Yeah. So the, the, the son that my parents raised gets to interact with all these people all over the world and in yeah. a sense yeah. their name and reputation is you know a well, sort of uh, judged through my actions well and how much are you influencing the lives of others by doing what you're doing versus staying in that town yeah you know what I mean and I don't I don't think I don't think that's just a small town thing I think so many people live on the external and live you know like care too much almost what other people think and then it becomes Absolutely. well you know they need me to work overtime and they need me to do this and my parents want me to go to school for this and it's like if you don't live your own life if you're not happy for yourself you're going to be useless to like you're not going to be able to do anything for anybody so for anybody yeah. there's a there's a strength coach in Rhode Island his name's John Moore but he's a really clever guy yeah. and he made this comment yesterday we were just I was working out and we're just talking and and it was just very briefly in a different tangent. He was he had made an observation of the guys that are in the industry right now that don't maybe don't even work as personal trainers. They're just gym going guys. But 
they don't really take care of themselves, but they're using so much gear and so much other stuff to get massive yeah. that they're becoming very extremely unhealthy and they're not a very functional human being. Mm-hmm. So their life has external appearance. Yeah. You know? So yeah. 100, and the women are the same, 100% of who they are is that most superficial layer of personal perception. Yeah. And he, and he, he makes the comment and then he sits there for a second because he's also a very deep thinker and spiritual, and he goes, you know, you're almost guaranteed that they're going to be doing this life over. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Because they just realized it. And I, and I was like, you know what, he's right. It's, uh, it is that. There, there's no outward connection to anyone or anything. Yeah. You know? it, and, it's no different than the, the person that never that never leaves shore, right? And it's like, if you wait for the comma seas to set sail, Oof. Yeah, you're not going to have a lot of luck. No, it's you not. Uh, it's not what life's about. No, sure. you can always go home. That's yeah. what my dad always told me. Huh. My dad said to me when I was very young. He goes, "You can always come home." Huh. He goes, "But you have to go away and see what's out there." Yeah. I would probably say the lack of consistent connection to high quality people. Yeah, and it's it's a bit twofold. One, we lead. There's a lot of douchebags in the industry in terms of very selfish, one percent external gratification people. Sure. Very few people want to know who you are. They just care about what they look like and whether or not you acknowledge it. Yeah. Um, that part of it I don't like at all. Um, I like my goal, for example, to be sub ten percent is one hundred percent based on. Like I'm realizing now as I get close to 40, getting lean is important because it's going to help me live a better life. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It, it's, it's a different psychology. Yeah. Than when, than um, when you were 20 for sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right? Like everybody yeah. goes through a stage. Like when I was a young athlete, man, I, I, was, a, I was a bit random. There yeah. was times where I was probably very difficult to, to be around if you didn't know me well. So yeah. I'm, I'm not going to say I'm not guilty of some of those characteristics. Everybody is. For sure. But that, for me, is probably the most difficult thing because even when I think back to when I was the most, you know, uh, self-centered, driven athlete in phases where I was trying to achieve a goal, I still believed that everybody had something to share. It may not have always been the information that you could use, but, man, everybody's got a story. Yeah. And I, I really have a hard time with people that can't take time to listen to somebody's story. Yeah, I agree. And I hate that. I agree. Because that, that story could change their life. Absolutely. And then the, the thing, the other part, which is connected to that, but from the other perspective, for me, for sure, is it's the, the lack of consistent connection when you do meet interesting people. Men or women... <laughs> Relationship, not relationship, uh, sexual energy, not sexual energy, has nothing to do with that. It's like, it's just this rawness to a human where when you look into their eyes when they're talking to you, you're like, this person has something to say. Yeah. And you know that you're only going to get exposed to it for maybe two days out of the next three years. Yeah. And you're just like, and, and you take it away, like you're thankful for that time, but you're just like, Fuck! I travel so much. Like how? What? Like, man, I wish I could just be somewhere long enough to actually hear all this person's information. Yeah. You meet somebody, or you are in a situation.
that is going to like permanently imprint itself on you for the rest of your life. And that used to happen to me a little bit, but when I started traveling and meeting thousands of people, it started happening a lot. Can you give an example? Or I would be like having coffee on a street in this city on the other side of the planet, and it was like there was a moment of clarity occurs where it's like your mind and your whatever you want to refer to it as, depending on your belief system, but like a soul or a spirit, it all sort of lines back up, and it's like you have the realization that I don't know how I got here, but I am on the other side of the planet in this moment with this person or with these people, and it's very awakening yeah. because it, I, I don't think – you get to experience that very much. Our, and I don't know if you, we are supposed to get to experience that a lot. And I think there is something to it because it, it's a weird experience. Like when you are aware that you're aware of yeah. being somewhere else with a completely different culture of people. Mm -hmm. It's very strange. And to me, I think that's the best part. Like mm -hmm. more so than – and I, I love when I'm lecturing – and I, and I have that moment where I can tell that information and that in that moment, the same need that I had as an athlete to win is being achieved now by sharing a huge amount of my experience with other people. Mm. And it's the same self-gratifying, you know, ego side of myself that is being fulfilled but it's a much more enjoyable sensation knowing that it's not just to, you know, the moment of winning, but it's like I'm getting that same experience by giving something away. Yeah, helping others. And that, that's pretty – that's probably, I would say, the most personally satisfying. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's pretty profound. And, and that's uh, – I think that's the one thing that I'm, <laughs> I'm really learning on this journey is uh, – the more you can give back and, and really help others. Like I, I think that's why we've all been put here to be honest with you is, you know, the more you can enrich another person's life and, and other people's life. And the more, um, the more we can help them achieve their goals or, you know, get through their struggles. Um, that's, that's the, the stuff that, that makes me feel, feel pretty good. So I, I see it a hundred percent. You know, it's uh, helping someone achieve a, a physical transformation in life, if you do it correctly, is going to be a complete transformation of self. Yeah. And too many people right now in this industry, all they're focused on is shedding 3% in an X number of days. And so they can go away. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know what happens is is they may push for that goal and they may achieve it, but it seems like it always leaves the client empty yeah, and some sort of void in the relationship between the client and the coach. It's like they gave, they both gave away so much. One of the most important things that I would say to somebody that's coming up is if somebody, if they, even if they're just outrageous, like they're one of these characters in the industry, 
if for some reason they're in a weird mindset and they feel like giving away the keys to the car without you asking for them yeah. in the sense that they just get into a weird mood and they just want to talk about what they know about, who knows why. Yeah. If you don't have anything better to do, stop and listen. Yeah. Because you're probably going to be getting impression of what they have of their knowledge. Yeah. Because there's not a gratuity or some sort of connection to it, a goal or a or an outcome. Always find a way to be in those moments when they exist. Find a way to take ten minutes and just be there for it. Yeah. It's something you're passionate about. If if it's a famous musician, like I remember this happening where I wasn't a musician per se, but I loved music. And I went and watched a concert, and then said, oh, life is funny. Next thing I knew, we're, we're backstage with the band and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and they were just talking to one guy in our group who they sort of knew, and they were catching up. Yeah. And it was like, I would never trade that moment of a story being told and what I learned for anything. Huh. You know, and it was because it was raw. Just being introduced to people consecutively. If you don't remember their name, you know, like, hey, this is Bob, this is Joe, this is Joanne, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. If you don't remember any of these people, ask yourself why that is. And the number one reason that typically is the reason is because we're so concerned about telling people who we are that our name replaces theirs. Yeah. So you're like, hi, I'm Derek, I'm Derek, I'm Derek. And they're giving you their name. Yeah. Right? So yeah. They're, they're doing the same thing. Yeah. And it's like, but it's a good test. What you learn very quickly in that scenario, and it's human nature, is we get so used to trying to, you know, share ourselves that we have become almost completely numb to the information coming in. Hmm. It's like, I just started practicing, like, like de emphasize self and emphasize others. Yeah. If you can start to do that, all of a sudden it's amazing how much information is just out there for the picking. You know, just yeah. free information. And it, it's it's funny. It's kind of a like a double-edged sword because you talked before about almost being a little bit selfish, but it's like the selfishness, if you want to call it that, comes in you know taking care of self first, and you know yeah. like. It's that self-love, right? Like you can't, you yeah. can't, you can't be good to others unless you're good to yourself, kind of thing. But but then it kind of is on the reverse with what you're saying um, with situations like this. So it's it's kind of a fine line to, to try to walk. Um, almost impossible. Yeah. It's yeah. Almost impossible. Yeah. Know? But I, I think it can be done. I think uh, I think again it goes back to. Um, taking that that quiet time and actually listening um, internally versus looking for um, answers on the external which yeah. which I think you know that's that's what we're brought up doing and that's um, that's all most people know is you know learn from schools learn from TV learn from right versus you know taking yes. that quiet time and going inside and, and finding out you know, what kind of person am I, you know, what are my needs, what are my, my wants, 
but then like you said taking that time to to really um connect with someone and, and see what they're all about too yeah no i agree 100 percent. and like what you said you know with school etc and I, I think that's where it starts to stem from you know is we're programmed for competitive interjection right so the teacher is asking a question and people are, are competing to get their response yeah and we're very much raised in a society that way where competitive interjection of information your most humbling buddies probably the guys that have no problem making fun of you on occasion you have no problem poking a joke at them yeah sit them around a campfire and just let them interact and there's always going to be one guy that's a bit more of a storyteller one yeah. guy that's a bit more introverted yeah but for the most part that conversation will go in a circle around that campfire all night yeah you know and it's like yeah. they keep passing the punk you know and it's just one after the other and then there's interjection but for the most part it's just this can you know it's one out of eight talks at a time yeah and it's flow there's a flow to a it oh yeah you know and I think people just lose that flow. For me, that's how I look at lecturing, you know? Like, when people ask me, like, how did I develop my lecture style? Yeah. It's, for the most part, I don't call it one-sided, but it's a majority-driven conversation. For me, it's always been that way. Okay. It, I try to present as much information as I can before I get a sense from the group that there's time for an interaction. Yeah. And I know it sounds really, like, intuitive and psychic, uh, like, metaphysical psychic sounding, but it really is that way. It's like I put out as much information as I can until I can sense that what I'm saying is slowing down. Yeah. As I feel it's bring them back towards me. Yeah. And it took me a while to figure out how to do that. And it took me a while to become really sensitive to it. Yeah. Um, well, I think... Not, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, I think it's a muscle like everything else. Like when you talk about kind of met metaphysical training, like, in essence, I think we all have those kind of abilities. It's just tapping into them and, and learning about them and, and training them. And I, I believe wholeheartedly that you know, like you're sensing sensing an energetic off of the yeah. people that that you're working with, and uh, and tuning into that and, and making it work for you. No, I agree a hundred percent. I was once working with a Swedish doctor who had watched me speak, and and the doctor had said, you know, you have this very interesting presence, and he was very honest, and he's like, he goes, even when you get a little bit excited, it's not <laughs> uncomfortable. Like yeah. I said, it's just a weird energy. He goes, what do you do that creates that connection? And this was about three years ago. Huh. And it was a very candid moment. It just came out of me. And I was like, to be quite honest, I go, I'll tell you what my secret is for, for presentation. Because I perceive it as an exchange of energy. I don't perceive it as me giving you information and you taking it and storing it in your brain. Yeah. I don't I don't think humans actually learn that way. Huh. I think we all learn differently. Um, but I think it's literally more of an exchange of information energetically. Yeah. And I said when I walk into a room, I learned 
along the way. I didn't want to be like some of these other presenters that you'll see in this industry. They walk into a room like they're John Wayne and they throw their stuff around and they create this like, oh my God, I better pay attention or I'm going to get this type of trouble or, yeah, yeah. wow, this guy's really overbearing. I'm supportive. Do that. I've never been that way. Yeah. So it, it's not my personality. I've always been the kid that was a little bit bigger, so I always tried to be a little bit smaller. Yeah. You know, like so I didn't. Yeah, it's just how it is. Didn't, didn't scare so, people. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. I, I'm very aware of the fact that I'm a, a paley white, icy blue eyed guy. That <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that that has a little bit harder looking facial expressions, and it's like I know. I know that. I'm, I'm 37. Yeah. So I'm aware of book by the cover appearance. I got tattoos. I'm a big guy. I know all these things. Yeah. And so for me, even though that is only a representation of a part of my, of my, my personality, it's when I get in front of people, it's a meditative thing that I start doing before I enter the room. And I see myself simply as a medium of information because very little of what I say is – truly information that somehow I, for the most part, it's my ability to take information, put the pieces of a puzzle together. I see myself as a conduit or medium of information. And so when I envision, and I do this, and I, I envision it, is I envision myself as like a center of energy in which a flow of water comes out of, and I literally project the image of water coming from myself and covering everything in my space so that everything is all one thing. That's awesome. And that's, that's awesome. how I envision When I feel very connected, yeah. I know that I'm doing that very well. Yeah. The meditative imagery part of it, I was very comfortable with. And we just, and it's just this, and to be quite honest, I feel less exhausted at the end of 30 hours of lecturing when I can keep that happening. Well, yeah, it's, it's like you're, uh, um, in a lot of the training that I've done, we call it source. It's like you're tapping into source and, and letting it use you and and you're speaking from source. So yeah, right. like you're you're not you're not being drained of energy because you're you're staying connected to the energy. To the energy. Yeah. 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 And you simply are a conduit. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's such a great way of, of uh, looking at it. <laughs> yeah, and some days when you get disconnected from it, man, I tell you what it it's like you crawl out of that week. That I pursued uh, Reiki to try to nice. start getting educated in energy work. Um, I started to pursue a little bit into regression hypnosis when I was about 16 or 17. Yeah. Just intuitively thought it would be something I'd like to know about. Um, my dad that's pretty cool yeah you know my dad was a very much blue collar lumber guy um but was really extremely well read in like edgar casey and extrasensualism and some of these other very obscure topics for small town canada so mm -hmm. it, i always had a little bit of um i always had an interest that there was a, a greater driving force of whatever you know <laughs> And I always say it this way because I believe in spirituality, I, so I leave religious denomination open to people's understanding. Yeah. But I was I always was driven by an idea of a of an energy spirituality spirituality 
man, I couldn't even tell you. Like, it could be aliens for all I know. I don't know. Right? Like, I don't know the, the greater scheme of things, but I do know that to say that we start and stop within a physical existence of ourself would be the probably, in my opinion, one of the most arrogant things that we could say. Yeah. You yeah. know, to yeah. say that we came from dust, we'll finish at dust, and nobody else was involved. And and sad. It's and it sad, right? Hard. Like. What, what sadder existence is there than being like, yeah, my life has no meaning. Like, I was born by accident and I'm going to die. Yeah. Like, to me, that's one of the sad, one of the saddest things, like, ways to, to think about things. And you know what the thing is, is when people talk that way. Then there would be absolutely no people or person in coming from a large family of, of this industry and say police or firefighters, there, you would not have the instinct to throw yourself into harm's way to protect the longevity of another. Yeah. Like you would never give your own life to prevail the life of another if it was simply on and off switches. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and people are like, oh, there's no such thing as, as a spirit or a soul or a greater understanding. Eh. Have, Say this to somebody that's willing to risk their life for another human. Yeah. Like, that makes you realize that there is a much deeper existence to why. Yeah, because, you know, if they just turn off and they turn to dust, then what does what difference does it make if I saved them or not? Yeah. It doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Like, intrinsically, we know we can't be that way. Yeah. You know? yeah. So so what do you say to people that either don't get that or don't want to get that? Like, what? You know. I mean, obviously, you can't change no, there's how some, some people, people are, right? And, and some people will never understand it or... You know, and I think it's I think it's fear based. Um, yeah. You know, it's like I, I'm not I'm not Listen, as big hard, as the universe. You know what I mean? Like yeah, they're having a hard enough time controlling nine to five. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know? and and that's and that is it, it is control. I think for a lot of people, myself included. I remember going through some very difficult times in my life where I cut that out of my life because I didn't have the energy to, to think about it. Yeah. So yeah. as simple as I can think is I became very focused on the here and now because if I didn't focus on the here and now, uh, it was too you overwhelming. Would, you wouldn't get through it. And, yeah, I couldn't get through it. Yeah. You know, ego-based at times, uh, like children. Yeah. And, and when, you, when you get people that are that way, honestly – it doesn't make them bad people. It just means that for whatever point, if they come into your life at that time, then your job, in my opinion, is to try to correct as much of the world that they're involving you in. Yeah. So make it's health and longevity and strength. And, yeah. and just make them a stronger physical vessel so that maybe they can make it further down the road of this path so that they will actually make it to that moment where they're going to have kind of an aha and, moment or an awakening. Yeah, a moment or awakening. Like because you know, with the way that society is today, 
some of these people, they hit 35 to 40 and they start having heart attacks. That, I don't think, was how the system was developed. No. You know, like, uh, okay, this is going to sort of be a strange way for me to describe it. But, like, people, there's a lot of people that are true fatalists. And they believe that if you die at 31 because of a heart attack, because you lived on hamburgers, well, that's what you were supposed to do. I don't believe that. No. I believe that there is fate that intervenes at different times in our lives and gives us opportunities to, to make a decision. But I think that at any one time, there's a million decisions to be made off of one moment of fate. Yeah. And so what I think, and this is just my belief Almost system. like parallel universes. Yeah, exactly. So the way I look at it is this. I lost a friend last year, and she was killed by a bad person yeah. that was breaking every possible law to inflict the outcome. And people will be like, well, it's just fate, it's how things happen. No, I think that we are on the earth making decisions. But I think when the concept of evil or bad choice or indiscretion occurs, I think that is still a choice on his part. Sure. The result of that choice then affected all these people. Yeah. I think that his karma, his soul, his existence will now be judged because of that choice. Yeah. yeah. I think when I somebody comes in and they've lived on fucking cheeseburgers and booze and are going to have a heart attack at 40, they were given the opportunity not to have that happen. Yeah, yeah. They started to make choices. Bad choices. Opportunity for a life of enlightenment. Yeah. And I think when we and when you get those people, they typically are very turned off mentally to that reality. It becomes you invest as much of your physical energy to strengthen their physical energy so that maybe somewhere down the road they will have that realization yeah. and they'll realize that they're here for more than just a very superficial level of experiences. You know, having gone through that myself, where I've been in a situation where, I'll be very honest, a lucrative paycheck was determining my happiness in terms of career. Yeah. It's, it can be very imprisoning, you know, because the sense of security starts to override how bad you feel, how yeah. unappreciated you feel. Like, there's a lot of things that go with that. And when I'm dealing with those types of people, it's like when I'm coaching a young athlete, like I've had, I've had the 18-year-old athlete that comes into the office and tells me his girlfriend's pregnant. And, and what I always tell people is like when you start to administer advice from the, the most centered part of yourself, whatever wisdom that is that you currently have, yeah. it has to be done very, very slowly. Yeah. And what I typically used to find is I would first try to gain their trust in the physical world before I even began branch into their trust in the metaphysical existence of themselves. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's like, because what I found is I don't want to ever stand behind somebody with a foot in their back pushing them into harm's way. No. 
I would rather have them believe so greatly in the cause that we're on that as I run over the hill, they're on my head. Yeah. You know, like that's, yeah. and that's where if you can do your job well, at, and it's not just about leadership, it's about uh, someone that inspires confidence. By default, we give that title uh, leadership, but I don't think you always have to be a natural leader to have people follow. Yeah, I agree. You know, I think people will follow somebody if their intent is genuine. I agree. Yeah. You know, and they don't have to be the patent esque personality, but people will indeed travel down the path as long as they believe that what this person is doing is for improvement of everyone one involved. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, I think it goes back to just you know, walking your own path and if, if people you know, if, if if that happens to light a way for other people then they can choose to join you or, or not. Right. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And you're, listen, you know, it's, and I'll be the first to admit this. Not everybody's going to like what I have to say. No. Not everybody's going to agree with what I have to say. And I used to worry about that. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, as long as I'm not speaking with the in, Tent to jeopardize the well-being of an undeserving person. Yeah. You know what? If someone agrees, they agree. If they don't, they don't. But as long as I'm being honest or as honest as I'm able to be with the information that I have, if somebody wants to turn around and be like, I don't like that fucking guy because he's this or I don't like that guy because <laughs> he calls bullshit. That's... There's nothing I can I – can't, what can you do, right? No. And that's if your intent was right, and they still don't like you, then why change your intent to pick up the one person that doesn't? And when so many others do, fifty that did. Yeah, you know? yeah. But that's how people think, right? They, yeah. they almost would rather take that broken puzzle and fix it than keep helping those that are on board. Yeah, you know. When you, when you experience dramatic impact for the first time and it's not something you've had before, a lot of people look for external influence to be able to numb themselves. So you get people start drinking, they start using drugs. Yeah. You're never going to make it through. You can, you'll get by. But you, in my experience, will not make it through traumatic, life-altering experiences by yourself. Agreed. You know, yeah. I, I think a lot of people think they can. Yeah. Yeah, you can't. I I was surrounded by a really good group of guys that were on my team at that time. Yeah. And uh, and they knew when to to show up. You know, they yeah. knew what days to come around. And and I think that's instrumental. Um, my family was a long ways away. Uh, my brother and I were able to talk all the time uh, on the phone. Yeah. It was important. But, I, you know, that part of my life was separated, so that was tough. Um, at the time, I was dating a girl that was extremely supportive. She was also an uh, all-American level volleyball player. And so she could, she could deal with how dramatic my emotions were at yeah, times. Yeah, yeah. Cause yeah. She 
knew what it meant. Yeah. Um, but when I step back, and what all that simply means is that I had a support system. It's that human connection again. Had a human connection. Yeah. I didn't feel like I was uh, uh, on an island. You know, yeah. it is of the utmost importance that you force yourself into their life a little bit when they start to really withdraw. And when when they start to go away, sometimes they need to go away just to, to recenter and to deal with some emotional garbage. Yeah. But if you start to see that it's becoming a, a change in, in uh, personality or a change in habit, you have to bring them back out of that. Yeah. And it does, it's not a big, it's not an intervention. It, it, for me, it was simple. I can remember one time I had, I had really withdrawn into myself, really got so inside my head about trying to focus on coming back from this injury that I realized it would probably been three weeks since I'd seen anybody from my team. Oh, wow. You know, and that's a long time to yeah. call it, right? Yeah. And next thing I knew, they were all at my door and they were all going out to the bar. I didn't want to go, right? I didn't want it because I was in into my new routine. Yeah. And uh, and I remember going. And I can recall the entire evening perfectly. It was a very <laughs> funny night, you know. And I remember walking on my crutches back to my dorm room. And my one buddy, Jason, kept walking. And I couldn't quite figure out why he was still there. And I'm walking, and I'm walking. And I'm like, all right, I'm getting on the elevator. And he's like, yeah, I know. He goes, they sent me in to make sure you got to your room. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. And then he's like, all right, see you later. And he left. And at that moment, I realized, like, these guys have been sitting around worried about my well-being. Yeah. And from that moment forward, I let them back in because I, I realized how important they were. They were, like, I, only I was going to be able to deal with my injury. And you're looking at a rehab for me that was nine months. Yeah. Oh, if you do that by yourself, you become so disconnected. Yeah, no doubt, man. You know? And no it doubt. doesn't matter what the rehab is. I don't care if it's someone that's going through AA. I don't care if it's someone that is coming off drugs or, or you know, had a, a long military service and, and they're dealing with post-traumatic stresses. If you leave them to their own devices, what typically happens is you do start to have a tendency to only obsess about the, the, the negative part of it. The negative, you know, the pain. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's it's a strange human culture. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why we do it. You know. No, no. And I, I I know a few people that are are like that as well. And it's it's even something as simple as maybe not simple, but you know, where you're almost at a almost at a point in your life where you need to to change careers or path and and yeah. you know, um, and I know. A few people that are kind of remove themselves and, and distance themselves, like you said, and, and uh, um, you know, how how is that helping the situation? It, it, like, you know what? I, I really don't believe. I mean, we need other humans to perpetuate the human race on the most physical, basic, biological level. Yeah, that by default means that we are not supposed to spend our life alone. Yeah. And I really, I, I'm a simple, simple guy. Like I, it's like, if at the very least I need one other human in my life, at least for one day, then that means that I should never have spent my life isolated, like uh, a hermit. You know, yeah. 
It is a terrible thing to be. What they don't realize is that long-term pathological pain that they get used to is so much worse. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'd rather have my heart broke a thousand times than live my entire life alone. I agree. I can hands down. Yeah, <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. And I mean, yeah, if if something ends and and you're in love, it, obviously it's going to hurt, but. But to, to go through that hurt and, and heal and, and have the opportunity to, to love again, like, I mean, there's there's maybe nothing more profound than connecting with another human being like that. And, and yeah. you know, I'm, I'm with you 100%. I wouldn't, like, to shut yourself out from that, like... Disaster. Yeah. yeah. Even if it's, uh, even when we meet these people nowadays with... With the Twitter, Facebook, they're there, but they're not really there. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And it, and it becomes a sequential existence of one day long relationships, one day long friendships, and it's just after another, after another. And you meet these guys, and they're in their late 30s, and they're just like these robotic shells of a human being. Yeah. And they're just like, what the fuck happened to you? It's like, how can you have gone through a life living in a city of three million people and be completely invisibly socially alone, you know. But it, it is. It's uh, it's a human mechanism of protection, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter. You could grow up in a town like I did, have a guy go build a house in the woods, and legitimately become a hermit. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or you become a social hermit, which is basically a psychological equivalent. Yeah. Right. They yeah. put up a giant wall around themselves. And yep. physically, they go through a social life, but psychologically, they're completely... I- a good friend of mine who's a tattoo artist, a guy that does all my tattoos, very honest. He, he keeps me very centered. He's an old bullshit, hard-nosed guy. And... Uh, and he, he said something one time that really resonated with me. And he said that he remembers the first time he did a drawing that uh, his father really liked and commended him on. And he realized that his dad's approval of that moment really drew or like drove him to master being an artist. Because he, he realized from that point on, like every time he did a tattoo or did something – it was the admiration of the person getting it that he gave to him that that drove that motivation to keep doing better art. Yeah. To keep trying to, to create something that somebody someday would be so blown away by. And it started huh. with his father. And and I would say that my dad, who was actually quite a, quite a good athlete, um, was probably the first person. Because I would hear these stories of like how much he enjoyed sports. And I was like, well, what if I got really good at sport? Then, you know, he would tell me how great it was. And, of course, he did, and it, it, it spurred, and he became my greatest supporter and, and all those good things. But then I realized, this goes back to the ego again. When I think back to when I was a kid trying to become an athlete, which eventually became my passion in my life, it was the attention. That was a big part of it. Like, I wanted to be so successful that like I used to I used to sit when I was a kid and I used to picture myself on the fucking tonight show 
the Tonight Show. <laughs> and I have no idea. Right. And, like, and I used to pretend that I was having an interview with Jay Leno when he first took it over. <laughs> and uh, because I figured if, if I did that, that meant that I was so good at something that people couldn't ignore me. Yeah. Right? Fuck, yeah. he must be really good if he's on the Tonight Show. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, it's funny how that is, but it, it really, that was a big motivator for me. And it's probably only been in the last few years, I would say maybe since I motivation now, it's like, I'll tell you what, when, when a course is done and I can see people are really charged up about what they feel they learned from it yeah. and, and that experience, that's still the motivation. It's that the sense of, of uh, you know, if, if I was a stand-up comedian, it would probably be the applause at the end of the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. The, the crowd going crazy. Like, the idea that I could, it's like, drive people to, like, change a path in their life. And I used to really have a hard time talking about it because it made me feel like I was a total arrogant asshole. But then I sort of stepped back one day and I realized that that was the very thing that used to get me excited to go listen or watch somebody else. Yeah, yeah. And like seeing them just like explode this passion on you and you're like, Jesus fuck, this guy just blew my hair back. It made me want to go out and try to do that and share that. Yeah. I was like, that's what motivated that's me. And, awesome. that's, and when I finally accepted that, is the simple fact that there is a part of me that gets like moment of, of wonderment and awe. Yeah. That, that's it. Like I would like to say it was much more, maybe when I'm 60, you know, I'll be like, well, you know, teaching and, and sharing the wisdom of, of existence. Oh, man, I like the, the moment of like the holy shit, that was amazing moment. Yeah. I love that. I love hearing it. I love watching it. I love being the guy saying it. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. I don't care how it happens. I want to be a part of it. You see some of these moments on ESPN or... Or when you see that interaction where somebody has super exceeded the human experience and it's caught on film, yeah. it makes me extremely emotional. Yeah. I realize that that's what drives me. And it doesn't matter what side of that relationship I'm on. It doesn't matter if I'm the one presenting it or I'm the one hearing it. Yeah. I just love that moment. That's amazing. And I love it. And I think that's probably my greatest motivating factor. You know, and if I get to stand in front of a group of 30 people in Hong Kong in April and do that to people, and then knowing that they're going to take that and probably do that to someone else in some other way, or one of those people will have that moment, yeah. ugh, amazing to me. It's an amazing idea. It's just, yeah, it's just, I think that's, it's almost like the root of inspiration. It's like that, you're inspiring others to go and inspire others who are going to yeah. inspire you know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah. like when I think of my lineage of coaching and the people that have inspired me, man, I tell you what, like, if they only knew, yeah. you know? And it yeah. wasn't always the big moments. Sometimes it was the subtle stuff that just leaves that imprint. comes from a story you know it's yeah. uh you know music is one of the greatest examples of story and it, it's 
like, fuck, being Dave Grawl in front of 100,000 people, yeah. you think that's all for the sound of the song? Yeah. Or this, just so he can share that perfect riff? No, man, it's because that 100,000 people are completely blowing his mind. Yeah. And he's getting to fill them with his passion. That's a crazy idea to experience. <laughs> you know? yeah. I guess I why... That's why people get so emotional with standing ovations and stuff like that. Absolutely. Right? It's just like all those people are paying that attention to you, and it's like, how do you not get overwhelmed by, by that? And collective energy and collective group think. Yep. When you are on and when you are tapping in to the minds of a, of a thousand people, 500 people, 100,000 at Wembley Stadium because you're a rock star, yeah. when you can connect all those minds at the same time, at that same moment, and focus it on almost one solitary ideal, that is mind-blowing yeah. to me, yeah. that we can actually do that with humans, you know? And I, they can do it negatively, too, of course, but I mean in the positive sense, in, yeah. the, in the real human existence side of things. I'm a, I'm a huge believer in, you know, that we're collectively creating our universe so you know and that that means everything in it and all the energies and so the more positivity and the more you know education the more like-mindedness that that we can be a part of I, I think it just helps helps everyone and everything it helps increase awareness and help, helps in, in, um, you know pick people's moods up it helps increase positivity um, so the more more of that is the more of that that there is, and and I, I'm I'm a firm believer that there's a there's an awakening going on um, yeah. that has a lot to do with that. You know, the the people that aren't necessarily aware yet or or paying attention to it, they're going through tough times because the people that are aware of it are stirring something in, in the universe. Um, yes. Yeah. So yeah. one of the but, most spiritually awakened places I've ever been. You know, I've never been to India, obviously, so I, I can't really speak on behalf of them, but I know that they have a long tradition. But in the Western world is Finland, oh, really? enough. Really? Finland is incredibly progressive in their understanding as a whole of like a metaphysical, uh, energetic culture. And I remember being almost in the border of... a psychic and I can remember there's like five feet of snow it was like such a sur serene experience meeting with this you know almost nymph-like fairy existence <laughs> psychic in eastern Finland but that's what she was talking about and she was very aware of it and it was very common when I spent time in Finland for people to be in that mindset and the the fact that they are sort of stuck between a couple different worlds that they don't really interact with. But, you know, there is something to it. And how that's going to dictate the next hundred years, I really don't know. But I think it's going to be much, much different than the last hundred years. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree 100%. I agree. Yeah. I think it is one of the few uh, social benefits of technology. Yeah, actually. yeah. Um, okay. Technology turns us off, but it's also taken those few and turned them into many. Yeah, yeah, 100%. If uh, if you uh, if you haven't, 
this is for you guys on the webinar as well. Kind of forget we're doing one almost. <laughs> um, Terrence McKenna and uh, Jason Silva are two guys that are, uh, and, and I'll probably end up posting some stuff, um, some videos from those guys. But just to hear them talk about the interconnectivity and um, Silva talks about uh, how our technology is an extension of, of ourselves and um, like it's, it'll, to listen to those guys just, just kind of blows your mind and it gives you a different perception of, of what may very well be going on and it's, uh, it's just, it's mind-blowing. It's, it's such a phenomenal thing to think about things in that respect versus what we talked about before, the old, uh, yeah, you know, I was born by an accident, you know, a couple of pieces of dust came together and uh, life's got no meaning but, and then I'm going to die. That's exactly Holy right. Fuck. Like, Talk about depressing. No reason for us to be here, but yet every single human on the planet is ingrained with a survival instinct. Yeah. Like the same people that are like, ah, it's purely biology. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And the ones that go, yeah, but you have a survival instinct. It's really strange. So <laughs> what's the point? Right? Like just, just step back logically and be like, yeah, I'm just basically a, a meat suit. Yeah. But, man, I want to help other people. I want to explore the... At all costs, I want to survive. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know what any of that... How that even works. Like, just, it doesn't make any sense. No, there's no... It be doesn't add a, up. A mechanical meat suit with all those other things going on. No. You know, I used to think success was a representation of achievement on a scale. So, like, if I was ranked number one in the world, I was successful. Yep. And when sports stopped for me, it really messed me up because I had no way to determine my worth anymore. And for about four or five years, I went through some really troubling times where I, I just I didn't know who I was. I didn't have an identity. I just didn't know because my entire life until I retired at 30 was 100% measured on a scale of 1 through 10. Yeah. And how long I, how long did that the trying time last for, Derek? Five, six years. Really, yeah? I, I will honestly say, and I'm not completely out of it, that it's only been in the last year to 18 months that I've started to understand that success is so much more fast than a one-dimensional system. Like I used to think it was like, cause I tried to take that system and put it into coaching and then put it into business. And yeah. like, if I'm the number one guy that people are listening to on the internet, I must be successful. If I'm the number one guy that is teaching lectures for Poliquin, then I'm the best coach. I must be the most important. Yeah. Well, it doesn't work that way. Right? Because even if I was the most successful lecturer, <coughs> other things get involved like business and politics etc and so if they remove you like in my situation where I leave that company well the company's still going to exist they're yeah. still going to teach good lectures and they're still going to pass information yeah. so okay that didn't really make work so you have to step <laughs> back and you're like okay so what is success yeah. well you in my opinion you have to deem what you need to be happy and that was tough for me because happiness was kicking ass. That's like, huge, man. 
you know, like for me, I was most happy. Like my old teammate used to say, you're a misplaced, you're a misplaced time period. You would have been most suited and happy swinging an axe and living day to day. Yeah. No, and not an axe in the woods, an axe in battlefield. You would have been yeah. best suited with that. That's your mindset. You're like, it's win or lose every day for you. And you would have been best. You were a misplaced Viking. You should have been battling every day. And when you lose, you're done, right? Yeah. And, and, yeah. Uh, you know, and there's no and coming back in this world no anyways. Back, right? So it's like every day when you go to sleep and not get put to sleep, you have won, right? And yeah. so that's how I used to live my life. And it was like if I wasn't winning every day, for me, when I realized that success and happiness had to be much more connected, it, I had to step back and be like, what do I need to be happy? And for me, happiness now is much more. It's relationships, it's interactions with people, it's sharing information, and doing so in a way that gives me enough of a because society is what it is, and income to be able to continue to have those things. Yeah. You know, and it's like, people are like, yeah, but money's not happiness. Yeah, but live without it, you know, it gets pretty tough. Yeah, for sure. And so you always have to keep one hand in social reality. You know, it's, uh, I don't care how spiritual you are, you know, you to use your vessel to go make some gold, life's going to be pretty tough. Yeah. You know? yeah. So okay. there has to always be that reality. And so for me, success now is being able to do what I do, surrounded by the people that I want in my life, in a way in which I can continue to do it comfortably. Like, I don't, you know, I don't need to be the experience at the end of the road, you know? Yeah. And have been able to do something that's been able to fund that experience the whole time. You know, so for me, success more is is more about that than it is ever been in my life before. I think it takes some experience to realize that. Like, you know, I was uh, in my twenties. It was all about work and money, and you know, having the most things, and it had nothing to do with relationships and people and you zero. Know, yeah. And uh, you know, as as you get older. Or as I've gotten older, it's like, wait a minute, the toys, the toys aren't what matter. I mean, yeah, they make life comfortable, and like you said, yep. you, you do need a certain degree of, of money to, to have, uh, you know, to be able to live somewhat comfortably. But, you know, I'd I'd trade all the hours that I, you know, busted my ass alone, to be able to have that time back for relationships. It's funny how that is, right? Yeah. And it's. Uh... You know, I was talking to somebody about this recently, and she's a good friend of mine, and, you know, I said to her, I go, I go, I just realized that I moved to Rhode Island pursuing work, career, and success, and that's why I say it hasn't been that long. Yeah. I go, but I've been here for 12 months. No one has been in my apartment but me, right? And yeah. then that's the reality, yeah. because I, I, I realized that I was repeating the same habits yeah. that I've always been struggling with and that is did I win today and if so what was my win okay man I gave a kick ass presentation people are re you know recognizing me and blah 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 yeah. and then I come home to my nice apartment 
nice TV. By and yourself. Just, you're like, fuck. I'm back in the same routine. Yeah. What am I doing? What yeah. do I do? Like, yeah. how did I get here? How did I become again obsessed with swinging the axe? Yeah. I realized that what I want to do is get away from, if I give you this information, it comes with this baggage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. If I, I want to just be conduit of information, you know? And yeah. as I learn more, I'll share. Hopefully. The one gift I've always had is being able to take huge amounts of information and making it so that the layman can understand it. Yeah, yeah. Why? I don't know. It's how I was raised. It's it's an aptitude. I, I get it. I don't know why I can do it. I can do it. And that's what I tell people. It's like, and from so this important. point, yeah, you know, and it's like from this point forward, all I want to do is try to relate my passion to people, which I'm not lecturing. I have learned to keep my mouth shut a lot longer in interactions. I realized that if I wanted to continue to speak and lecture, I needed to step way back and understand that the only way I could continue is to allow other people to influence me more and to have a greater impact. Reading, listening, watching, and just simply trying to understand other people's um, points of view a lot clearer so that if the moment arose where someone was like, well, what do you think of this? And I had never stopped to listen to the answer, which I found happened a few times. Yeah. Like, oh, I don't really, I don't know. And so now when people are like, man, you always have an answer. I'm like, no, I don't always have an answer. Someone else someone had else did. it. Yeah. That's what you don't understand. It's like someone else had the answer. I just stopped and listened. No association with a change of self. You know, like <laughs> you can achieve a lot of goals without changing anything about who you are because goals a lot of times exist in a very physical external world yeah, yeah. when you're talking about changing yourself people are like well you got to set some goals okay so what's what do you want to change about yourself i want to lose weight okay this is what our goals are going to be and they do it but what people don't realize is that person didn't change at all yeah they just, it was one more task that their A-type hyper-stressed personality could pull off. Yeah. And you know what? When they get up tomorrow, they're no more healthier. They're still stressed, miserable, fucking A-typers. Yeah. I was the same way, right? Everything was that way. So for me, when I started to think, how do I change self? I had to do because I realized that it was social perception of personality was a big limiting factor in my ability to make change. So for me, I realized that I, I've always been an extremely spiritual, metaphysical personality. Yeah. But I hit it so well through my 20s and 30s because 
I didn't think people wanted to hear about that, or I thought that people would judge me too quickly if they knew that I believed in some of these very um, metaphysical ideals. And I realized, like, for example, that was holding me back. Yeah. So I wasn't able to make changes because of the social manifestation of what people would think of me or how I would be, you know, judged. Yeah. So I think that you have to address that right away. You have to make sure that if you want to make change in yourself, you have to have a, almost like a, a, a house cleaning of what you really believe, what are your core fundamentals, and whether or not that you're not making changes because you're afraid of how society will judge you. Yeah. You know, so if, if you're a really religious person, but you're not surrounded by religious people, so you, you know, for example, yeah. you may not ever express your your devout belief in religion because of social peer pressure. Peer judgment. Judgment. Yeah. That's going to really hold you back in decisions and changes that you make. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Uh, think of the think of the the men and women that struggle with homosexuality. Okay, it's the same thing. They never get to. Thank God it's changing nowadays. But yeah. they would never get to express who they really are as individuals because the fundamental core of who they are is in, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they can't be open with that in a, in a societal way that allows them to express who they really are. Absolutely. So what happens with that type of thinking is you become a, a complete hindrance to yourself because you can't make change because you can't be who you really are. Yeah. And if yeah. you can't be who you really are, you will always be coming up short in what you're trying to do. Absolutely. And so for me, I had to step back and accept the fact that I'm extremely spiritual. Accept the fact that, and it sounds weird to say it, accept it, you know, but it is, <laughs> accept the fact that I was extremely spiritual and that not everybody's going to understand that. Accept the fact that um, I have an extremely... Uh, aggressive dominant personality in terms of goal setting and that not everybody's going to accept my my mindset when it comes to those sorts of things and that's okay too yeah and you know accept the fact that even on your best day you're probably going to have fallen on your ass somewhere along the way that day and when i when i realize those things for me that's when being able to make changes started to happen because it was never a fear of failure. Like I've never even gotten far enough along to fail. You know, I was, I was, shit. I didn't know what the outcome was going to be. I was, I was too afraid of how people were going to judge what I was doing. Yeah. So I never got along far enough to change enough to make enough progression to to either have an outcome. Of failure or success. Mm. Have to, I didn't have to keep shortcutting or preventing my personal growth for the sake of success elsewhere. Yeah. You know, yeah. like when you can line up your own personal growth and success, oh, fuck man, I think you're living a pretty good life at that point. Yeah. I, Which, I, I, you know, shit, I'm still on that path myself. You know? Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. Um, and I, I think the important thing for people to remember is just to take that step. Like, I think so many people feel 
stuck in a job or stuck in a body that they don't want or and it's like I know a few close to me that they have to have everything mapped out they have to have business plans and it's like just fucking take a step like do do you have something that you do that you enjoy or that makes you happy yes do that start with that one thing and you don't know where that's going to lead like back to back to the start of your story you don't know where moving out of that small town is going to take you. Right. You know what I mean? So if you take the one step, if you join a class that you enjoy, who knows who you're going to meet there and who knows where that's going to lead to. Absolutely. But you got to take a step. Like if you don't take yeah. a step, like, yeah, you're right. You, you don't know what to do and, and you're never going to accomplish it. Right. You know, like a perfect example, someone wants to be an actor. Right? They would love to go to Hollywood and star in a big budget film. But because the idea of going to Hollywood is so fucking gigantic that it prevents them from taking a Monday night acting class in Wichita, Kansas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. If you want to draw comic books... You don't have to quit your job tomorrow to draw comic books, but you better start working on illustrations in your free time. Agreed. And, Agreed. and getting connected with what it is that is what you want to do. Yeah, with your with your passion and listen to your passion. Yeah, you take a small, small step. Take yeah. some steps yeah. and just start getting involved, yeah. you know? It's, yeah, there's, uh, there's nothing wrong with having, having your eye on the big picture, but nope. like you're never going to get there if you don't start... You gotta move. Small things. You have to move yeah. in that direction. That unless you're training for sport, then you're training for longevity. Yeah. And if you're training for longevity, then it's about maintaining the strongest body as long as possible. And Good. if I was to give two movements, one in the weight room would be like some people like to say snatch grip deadlift. I'm a bigger yeah. believer, and I, I, I think it's a snatch grip high pull. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It sounds weird to say that, but I think you have to maintain some speed and athleticism in your movements, yeah. but still get the benefit of a movement like the snatch grip dead. Nice. And two, the ability to sprint. Now, that's going to change with age. You'll sure. get tighter and slower and, and all of those things. As are the snatch grip uh, high pulls. <laughs> right? You won't be and going quite as heavy, probably. You won't be quite as heavy, but you can maintain the ability to move yeah. for as long as possible. I think for sure that if if you're trying to pursue something, legitimately pursue pursue it, you've got to get some people in your life that are either already doing it or believe that it's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah, it works out a lot, but you want to learn how to Olympic lift, something very simple. If you really want to do it, you're going to have to bring people into your world that also already do it so that you can create a collective, and it'll start to get you moving in that direction as a, as a, a part of something more. If you're really out of shape or very unhealthy in life, you got to start interacting with people more than just during the one hour that you spend in a boot camp that understand what it takes to be successful there. Yeah. Because you have to learn. You, yeah. it, it, if you knew how to do it, you would be doing it. 
So Agreed. you have to bring people into your life that know how to do it. Yeah. You know, you Agreed. need their you need their experience. Nutritionally, I, I think that people and myself included, it's a big thing that I've had to start to do as I've gotten older and and habits have to be broken. Yeah. Um, for me, change is being made as we speak with some things nutritionally, is you really need to get back into the habit of can you identify its origin, right? And yeah. paleo, that's paleo. Oh, it's not that complicated. Yeah. Rice is rice, right? Yeah. And it looks like a piece of rice. Yes. <laughs> um, we are puffed rice in a chocolate bar. That's not rice. No. We know rice is in there, but it's not rice. So it has when it's on your plate. Can you look at it and go, that's rice, Yeah. that's broccoli, that's potato, not something that it was turned into, <laughs> yeah. you know? And yeah. if people just did that, it's amazing how much more carbohydrates or this and that people can eat and not have an issue. Yeah. You know, like... Much, <sighs> much simpler way of looking at things. Yeah, it's like, eat a grape, don't drink grape juice, you know? It, yeah. It's, be able to look at it and be like, you came directly from the source. And a steak, we know as a cow, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a hamburger. It's different. It's, it's yeah, like that actual edible hamburger, <laughs> um, not meat. So I always talk about that. Like, If you just simply, when you put it on your plate, if you can identify it from its origin, you're doing real well. Yeah. Stress and, and, and emotional and that type of stuff. You know what? Because so many people are overstressed, and why? Like it's the type A's, right? And it's our society. It's yeah. Go, 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 and if I can't go anymore, I'm still gonna go. Yeah, we have a tendency, in my opinion, to gravitate towards exercise that just encompasses what our personality is already good at. So if I'm a high eight touch weights and, and slam stuff and do things, but the reality is, is we may only just continue to exhaust the system that we're already over exhausting. Absolutely. And so what I tell people is identify your personality type or have someone help you with that. And yes, you need that to appease the beast in your life, but if you don't do the opposing patterns you'll never actually start to use exercise as a stress release. Yeah. It will only continue to trigger the triggers that are exhausted. So for me... It's that yin and yang, right? It is. It, it really is. And, and like for me, I know, like I was the worst example. I started doing martial arts to appease, like in my mind, I, I was like, I'm going to start training again in martial arts to balance out my life. That's your, that's your yin. You're in exercise. I know. What do I do? I, I take Krav Maga, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Muay Thai, combination, <laughs> and, uh, and mixed martial arts. So the next thing I know, I'm getting punched in the face. I'm getting hit with a stick. I'm getting – someone's trying to shoot me with a gun that I'm defending and just blasting in the face for the balls. <laughs> there was nothing relaxing about that. No in there. <laughs> the most relaxing part was – not because even when you're getting kicked in the nuts on defense, like if you're just a shield dummy for that day, 
it was brutal, right? Yeah. And, or getting choked out or, or whatever was happening. And and I realized, okay, that is not it. So no. you have to, yeah, I did that because I wanted more of what it gave me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. release of energy. That wasn't helping me relax at all. I needed to go the other direction. I need, I need to do yoga and meditation and Pilates. I need to go for a run. Yeah. Even if I'm running a fucking 14-minute mile, it doesn't matter. Yeah. That, to me, brings the sense of calm to my center. You know, yeah. I'm not out running trying to run a marathon when I run. I'm out running to try to completely become inside myself on a different level. Yeah, clear your mind. I'm a terrible runner, right? Yeah. I'm yeah. a 260-pound guy that <laughs> was, you know, was yeah. a power cleaner and a, a back squatter. So if I run, it's not going to be fast. It's not going to be pounding. It's all about clarity of my mind. Yeah. The second thing that you have to do is you have to accept the fact that everything is a process. If someone had taken me at 18 and been <laughs> like, hey, you're going to break the Canadian national record, but it's going to take these surgeries, you're going to spend this time and like, you know, it just Holy fuck. out. Yeah. Over, I, overwhelm. I in no way. <laughs> overwhelm. <laughs> There's no, right? Yeah. But it's funny because now I look back and I'm like, that oh, wasn't so bad. Yeah, yeah. It's all right. Well, because you threw it. You're on the other side of it. Yeah. Like, yeah, only once you're through okay. it can you look back and be like, ah, yeah, I, yep. could do, I could do that again. That's exactly it, you yeah. know? And so when I, when I tell people, I'm like, you got to surround yourself with people that know how to do it. You then yourself have to think in terms of, much more smaller, manageable um, attempts at it. The third, and I think this is key in life, to me anyway, is it doesn't matter if you're an athlete or a non-athlete, it doesn't matter what you are equating this to. As great as your best day is, and as bad as your worst day was, at whatever you're trying to achieve, they still do not represent your ability and people are like oh yeah, yeah but I was you know I did this one time is that it? you did it one time and that's fantastic that shows your potential for yeah. sure yeah but you also really did this bad one time yeah you really sucked but that <laughs> doesn't show who you are no that shows what is capable when all things go wrong yeah and the goal is is what is your middle what is your average as a person, as an athlete, as a business person, your goal over time is to simply bring your average day up. Yeah. Never dwell on that day where it all went wrong and do not over celebrate that day that was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's just how life is. And it's like when you look at world champions and you look at Olympic gold medalists, predictor, the majority of gold medals are not the person's personal best. Yeah. But the person that wins the most typically has the highest consistent average. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and that's what they work to bring up. Their average day is better than most people's good day. Yeah. You know, that's it. Like, huh. you, Serena Williams, when she plays tennis, her average is just very high. Yeah. She's had moments of greatness and she's also lost. Yeah. But it's like her average is high. And, and if you can do that, that's where I think people will have the most success. And it allows your it allows yourself some leeway. 
some mental release. When shit goes awry, you don't overwhelm yourself with it. You yeah, know? Don't blow it's, uh, you, it really is. It's, it's about bringing up your average. Bring it up. When you're seeking clarity or advice, and it sounds weird to say this, but because I, I know we all do it to some degree, but when you are trying to, to make a change or you're trying to improve your level of understanding, listen to everybody, follow no one. I'm a, I'm a yeah. really, I'm a big believer in that. And, and trust me, there's been times in my life where I followed as an athlete where I put the, the intent of the goal ahead of my own personal belief system because I had to, because I had to do work. I had to be, I had to be the guy pulling the lever in the factory, you know, and there's times for that. Um, but when it comes to making change or growth or understanding, the moment that you start to turn off for the sake of an individual, that are all speaking the same thing, yeah. you, you automatically start to isolate your knowledge. And sometimes that's okay because, you know, you know, sometimes that happens, but try not to make it lifelong. So if you are out there trying to make changes, listen to everyone, follow no one. Yeah. Because what that allows you to do is to make decisions and choices based off the collective not based off based off of an isolative mentality yeah like i had someone say to me one time they're like one of the best things that comes out of your lecture and I, I, when they said it to me at first i was sort of offended not offended like how dare you but like god maybe I'm, i suck um <laughs> You know, but what they said was, you know, one of the most interesting things about the last five days was, is you left me with more questions than answers. Huh. And I was like, God, what? I had shit, I didn't do my job. Yeah. And then a couple of years later, I was like, absolutely. Wait, holy shit. This world is a big one. Yeah. And there is no way that one person can answer all my questions. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, 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 that's when I realized that, yeah, I'm a conduit of information, a medium of information in my field, but at, for some people, I will be the icing on the cake for where they're at in their life at that moment, and for hopefully just, the majority, I will be the key in the ignition that makes them want to seek out a whole bunch more. Yeah, they just open the door. Yeah, like people are like, hey, you know, now that you're away from this company or unassociated with that person, you know, should they still go listen to those people? Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. that you should. Because they may provide you with an answer that you need different. Yes, a lot of them will. Yeah. But what you have to look at is where did we agree and where do all these different people agree? And that's probably where the really good information lies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it. I think it allows people different perspectives, and then ultimately to follow their heart. Right. That's exactly it. We're always going to gravitate towards our own personalities. Yeah. Right. So I'm going to gravitate, even though I was never a power lifter. 
I'm going to gravitate to something a guy like uh, Jim Wendler says, you know, because he has a relatable personality when sure. he writes. And what, you know, I've met him, so I can I can vouch for his personality in real life or Dave Tate in real life. When you sit and you're not on the clock, it's just guys talking. Yeah. yeah you know what? Sure enough, how they perceive the industry, I gravitated towards. Yeah. And so I'm always going to lean. If I'm not aware of myself, I'm always going to lean towards guys like that and how they see it, Absolutely. because I perhaps I it's because I see it the same way. Sure. You know, yeah. so if they're like, ah, oh, cut the bullshit, it's this way, I'll be like, yeah, fucking <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. You know, like I've never taken a Paul Check seminar, for example. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm not a Paul Check type of guy yeah. on a fundamental level. But do I watch his stuff on YouTube when no one's around? <laughs> you know, I watch it all. That'll, like, that'll be our secret. <laughs> you know, I'll be sitting there, I'll be like, ah, wonder. You know, I remember watching him talk about Laird Hamilton, the big wave surfer, yeah. and how Laird was like literally almost a carnivore in his diet. And, you know, blah blah blah. It was fascinating to me. Yeah, it was fascinating. Like that, I was like, that information is invaluable. Yeah, you know, but I'm not. I'll never be that type of person in my own life. Yeah, yeah. It's just that his energy doesn't resonate perfectly with mine. People need to be a little more careful on the sources of information that they're investing in. Not that there's some that are good or bad this per se, but you have to know, you always have to know what the corporate structure is. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, it, you just have to know. And just don't go into things blindly. And when you leave something, a lot of times we have a tendency to leave a moment and be so fired up that we want to denounce everything that we've learned and only focus on what is new. Sure. You know? And I, if I would give one piece of advice, especially in this industry, is absolutely get excited about that information that you just learned because you should be excited that's the reason why you went yeah but do not throw away your other textbooks no you know it's okay to put them on a shelf for a few months as you focus on that new exciting thing mm -hmm. because you need to that's the only way you'll truly ingrain the information sure sure but as you start to as that relationship starts to cool down Go back and look at what was on your shelf. Yeah. And yeah. if you still don't care to read what you had already read, then that's fine. Yeah. Maybe you transcended that knowledge yeah. or information. Yeah. Awesome. But if you go back and pick up that old textbook of information from so-and-so and you're like, ah, there's some good stuff. Still makes here. sense. Yeah. But it goes into your new pile. Yeah. And Absolutely. that's A-OK. -okay. Yeah. You know? And... I'll continue to secretly watch Paul. That's awesome. Maybe I'll check him out too. <laughs> <laughs> Saw him yeah. years ago, but uh, haven't, haven't seen crazy, anything yeah. recent. <laughs> you know, but that's it, right? Like, it's just, because you just never know. Like, there, there could be something that, that resonates and the rest of it is hocus pocus. Yeah. Um, awesome. That's all the questions I have. So I just want to thank you uh, for taking the time, Derek. Uh, yeah, it's cool. It was it was awesome to, to speak with somebody in the industry like yourself that also is trying to do something greater than elbow flexion. 
You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. It's important. I think people forget that the body's the body, yeah. We're trying to improve our physical existence in this earth, but it is controlled by something else. Yeah, yeah. And the brain is, and the, and the spirit and the emotional connection, if, if you don't elaborate on all of those things,